This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor of economics at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Nick Bloom, a professor of economics at Stanford University. Today, we're going to talk about his paper, Why Working from Home Will Stick, which is co-authored with Jose Maria Barrero and Stephen J. Davis. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. So Nick, the paper is called Why Working From Home Will Stick. And let me start by telling you that this is an admirable exercise for the following reason. So economists venturing into the field of predictions have typically got their fingers burned. And it's very difficult in social sciences to forecast accurately how the wind is blowing. So in fact, one of the main criticisms of economists from outside the profession is that our predictions are often wrong. But here you are really taking a stand, arguing that even after the pandemic ends, a substantial proportion of the working hours will be from home. So I want to make your life even harder and ask you to be more specific about what will stick means. Obviously, the pandemic is not over. And even after it ends, there's going to be a certain amount of inertia in working arrangements. But imagine five years after the end of the pandemic, when we can say more or less that, you know, this is behind us, what percentage, in your opinion, we'll go to the paper in a second, but in your opinion uh, of working hours, do you think will be done from home? So, <laughs> great question. So I, I'll tell you some facts now, and then I'll, I'll, to get to the forecast. So just to give you some numbers, for the US, the UK is kind of similar. Northern Europe is reasonably similar. Before the pandemic, 5% of paid full working days were at home. So the, the metric I like best is paid full days because lots of people work from home in the mornings and evenings. So 5% of full paid days were at home before the pandemic. It went to about 50% during the pandemic and it went up and down a bit with you know various lockdowns, but roughly speaking, it was 50%. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from the fact that roughly half of all Americans can work from home. Half of all Brits, you know, Northern Europeans, they tend to be higher earning graduates in office and managerial jobs, professional jobs. They were basically working from home full time. And that, that includes a lot of faculty team researchers, you know, now are slowly returning, but for much of the pandemic, we're fully at home. The other half of people can't work from home at all. And they tend to be frontline retail, manufacturing, you know, public services, uh, you know, healthcare, etc. So then the question is, as you say, what's the long run prediction? So why don't I give you two numbers, prediction for basically next year, and then for five years out. So next year, I feel more comfortable on because we're surveying firms, and we're serving individuals. So we've been serving 5000 uh, working age Americans a month, in the US and actually two and a half thousand in the UK. In fact, I just got off a call. We've been doing a survey across Europe and into North Africa as well. And what you see is for employees who are currently working from home or have been during the pandemic, the typical post-pandemic plan is hybrid. So tons and tons and tons of employees and firms are saying, look, we're going to go for a three-two plan. Let's say like Apple mentioned Monday, Tuesday, Thursday in the office, Wednesday, Friday at home or two-three. And so as a result, in our overall data, we see about 25% of days post-pandemic next year will be from home. So the way to think about that is half of people get zero days, the other half get half of their days. So then your question is five years from now, that's definitely the tougher question. My best guess would be it's probably about flat because I think there's two kind of 
forces. One is people are slowly returned to the office, fears of infection, et cetera, various other changes were about a little bit. So that may push us down below the 25%. On the other hand, there's a number of forces that are pushing us up. One of them is technological improvement and working from home. So probably not that obvious, but you know, even the last 10 years have seen a massive improvement because in the last 10 years, we've had video calls, so Zoom and stuff like that and Teams and also cloud with Dropbox. So I've been working, working from home for almost 20 years. And even if you go back to 2010, where we're a randomized control trial, it was still all conference calls by telephone and emailing files. So, you know, looking ahead, I can imagine virtual reality and all kinds of cool stuff. It's hard for us to tell. In fact, we're in a paper, Steve Davis, Yulia Zekova and I look at the US Patent and Trademark Office and we see the number of patents that mention the word remote work, work from home is almost tripled. So that will push it up. I suspect they'll net out. So I guess we'll remain flat, my prediction, at about 25% for the next few years. Excellent. We'll go to this in a second and to examine more like the, the steady state, if you want, of, of working from home arrangements. Of course, you may say, well, there is no steady state because as innovation progresses, then maybe this number keeps changing over time. But but let's let's talk about this initial prediction of one year from now that you were uh, referring to that was based on a survey that uh, is the basis of this paper that you have uh, been running both for employees and uh, for uh, businesses. Can you describe when you started the survey, uh, how many uh, individuals do you sample? And broadly speaking, what are the questions that you ask? Sure. So it's kind of complicated, but yes. So there's two main types of survey. One is surveying directly to individuals. And for that, we use an online survey panel. So you can get, you can worry about that. Just explain the process. So you basically go to a company and you pay them and they pay individuals $2 per response. It takes about eight to 10 minutes. We then reweight it based on age, education, income, industry, and region to match the current population survey in the US. So there's issues about unobservables, but at least based on characteristics, it lines up pretty well. We survey 5,000 people a month and have been doing that since May 2020. And then we've done something similar in the UK since January 21 with Paul Meason and Shivani Taneja, and that's about 2,500 people a month. There's a separate survey we've been doing of employers. And in the US, we have a survey with the Atlanta Fed and Chicago and the UK with the Bank of England and not. Those surveys have been running for many years. And after the pandemic, we started to ask employers what you're planning to do. Thankfully, those questions from employers tie up very closely with what employees tell us, which is why, at least in the short run, I kind of trust the data because they triangulate extremely well. And you ask them about their current arrangements. You ask them about their plans. And you also ask them about how their expectations about what working from home uh, was has been fulfilled or not, whether they have found it easier or more difficult. What other type of questions do you ask them? Yeah, a lot of, I mean, I can tell you some questions, some interesting stylized facts. So one question is we asked them, how many days would you like to work from home post-pandemic? And how many days has your employer told you you're going to get? And we've been asking that for many months. And interestingly, there's always a gap. People on average want to work from home. And this year at the beginning of the pandemic, so post-pandemic, would like to work from home on average two days. That's been slowly climbing month by month. So now it's at about 2.6. So rather than us getting fed up with it, people increasingly are becoming comfortable with it. And they say their employer has told them they'll get to work from home about one day at the start of the pandemic. And it's now about 1.3. So there's always a gap. People want more work from home days than their employers are giving them. But both numbers have been rising. And interestingly, another big factor driving working from home is the strength of the US labor market. So I, you know, 
since the pandemic began, I've probably talked to like, I don't know, two, three, four hundred firms. I've also been doing a lot of discussions with firms, a lot of, you know, things that aren't firms. Like I talked to our local city council, Palo Alto, a number of universities, research labs, two, three hospitals, et cetera. And the other thing you, I'm increasingly hearing now is it's so hard to hire people that firms are increasingly increasing the number of work from home days and also doing what I call gimmicks. So a few firms have, I like Lazards or MasterCard or uh, I think, oh no, I was about to say JPAL. I talked to JPAL for economists out there about what they're doing, but a number of firms are offering one month work from anywhere. So, you know, when you talk to companies, they're like, look, it's a bit of a pain. We'd rather not do it, but it's so hard right now to hire, particularly 20 or 30 somethings with tech skills. It's the only way to get these people to come to our company. So another factor, but it's probably only really a short run factor is the strength of the economy is placing more bargaining power in the hands of employees. In our survey data, we asked them how much they like hybrid work from home. And they say it's on average equivalent to about a six to 8% pay increase. So if you put, you know, labor market strengthening in a perk that is pretty valuable, it's getting given out more and more. So that's another driver. I mean, another question is how it's turned out versus expectations and the impact on efficiency. Both are positive. I'd say our estimates are working from home post pandemic will probably increase in that overall productivity by about three to 5%. So on one hand, that's a huge number. If you remember the productivity is growing about 1% a year pre pandemic. So that's three to five years. On the other hand, it's not like epoch changing. It's not like suddenly, you know, we're going to be in a new normal. It's great. And working from home increases efficiency. The primary reasons are for hybrid, at least if you're working from home two days a week, A, you save on commute time. And about half of that commute time is used to work on your primary job. So that's effectively an increase in labor hours that at least in measured productivity is not previously measured. So if you think in the US, the BLS does not count commuting time. So suddenly effectively you're working more hours. And B, it's quieter at home. So in like the randomized control trial evidence, you see people are about four or five percent more efficient per minute at home because it's quiet. So that's another big, you know, I'll stop there, but there's a number, I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about this, a huge number of implications of all of this, both on technology, on cities, on inequality, even on things on do we shape people's hand? And, you know, there's all kinds of further ramifications down the road of working from home, but those are some of the immediate effects. So, so there are uh, like a, a couple of things that come from what you have said. The first one is that if I was skeptical about how well both employers and employees are able to anticipate the future, which, uh, you know, in a volatile environment, I would presume maybe not very well and also maybe with biases. I guess that your response would be, well, that may be the case, but the adjustment so far, at least from the moment that we have been running the service, is in the direction of more working from home rather than less. Because as, as you said, the, both the um, preferences and the willingness of employers have been creeping up from 2 to 2.7 or 1 to 1. 1.3 or, or something like this. So if I was to be skeptical, uh, you will say, well, you know, not just the levels, but the trend particularly <laughs> seems to yeah. be, you know, contradicting uh, uh, the, the skepticism. The, the other thing is that you were saying there is like a, a five-fold increase relative to the previous, if you want, like steady state, because the expectation is 20 to 25%, whereas it was 5% before, no? Yes. You have also uh, in the paper a number of arguments that don't come necessarily from the survey, but that make you believe more strongly that this may indeed be the case. You have referred already to some of them, which is the number of patents that have uh, improved the technology and made working from home better. 
Can you uh, describe what other um, elements you bear into this question that made you think that this will indeed stick? Sure. So I'll take those in reverse order. So why will it stick? This is less of a surprising prediction now in many ways than we started this paper. We first put out the first draft in what, June 2020. But the, you know, the drivers are one st- stigma, which we measure from the surveys, gone down dramatically. So it used to be working from home and I had a t- terrible reputation. I've been working in this for what, almost 20 years and people used to joke like shirking from home or working remotely, remotely working. And survey people say they're much more receptive. I think primarily because CEOs, et cetera, downwards have been working from home. Secondly, there's been a lot of investment in complementary intangibles and tangibles. So every Everyone now is invested in, you know, a nice home office, a proper webcam, microphones, a laptop. You know, I, I'm talking to you on, I'm standing up because I bought one of those $600 standing up, you know, desks at home. We've all spent a lot of time getting used to it. You know, like human capital, I know I, we've all used, you know, got very adept at Zoom, et cetera. Uh, a third factor I mentioned that technology is improving. I mean, this is classic economics directed technical change. That market size for working from home products probably went up 5x. And therefore, you know, in the tradition of Schmuckler and everyone, you know, economists of that era and ever since, of course, firms going to pour more R&D dollars in. Fourthly, it looks like in the survey data, there's pretty significant fear of density. So we ask people post-pandemic, when you are vaccinated or assuming you are vaccinated, what would you go back to doing? And you know, one option is all pre-pandemic activities. Another is all pre-pandemic, acti- pre-pandemic activities, except getting in crowded elevators, jammed subways, and it becomes more and more conservative. What you find is across countries, I just saw the data today for countries all the way into you know Egypt, the UK, US, you know, that, you know, whatever, 18 countries, you see very robustly in the same over time that about three quarters of people report they would not feel comfortable getting back into crowded elevators and subways. Now, that may be a bit overdone, but certainly I think there's going to be a residual fear of people getting into crushed you know, buildings and commuting. And then finally, the fifth factor making it stick is efficiency. So it just turns out working from home, A, has been on average more efficient than people predicted, but B, has this variance effect. And the variance effect is like the classic one-armed bandit problem. That, you know, If some firms find it's great, they'll stick with it. If some firms find it's terrible, of course, they go back. But you only need some to find it great. So those five factors Factors, I think are big factors driving the stick and why I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, 5%. Then on forecast, you know, it's very, the, the thing about working with super interesting is the entire business community and all of us kind of had it wrong before the pandemic. They asked people, how has efficiency turned out? And yeah, even though I'd done work in it, showing working from home can be efficient, improve productivity in the paper what, five, six years ago, I was also skeptical. I have to say everyone was skeptical and thought, oh, it's going to be a disaster. We're going to be distracted watching TV, falling asleep. You know, the joke used to be the three great enemies of working from home are the bed, the television, or the refrigerator. And, you know, I just thought it's not going to work. As it's turned out, we know that, you know, the economy basically survived. Uh, GDP per hour work now is actually above pre-pandemic levels. So working from home has turned out to be way better than anyone thought. And so I think there was a mass forecasting or expectation error around this. On the other hand, the survey data and the forecast we've had from about May 2020 onwards have seemed to be pretty, as you said, consistent, sticky, and I think realistic with firms that are now going back. So at this point, I'm starting to talk to companies that are going back. Most companies are going back to hybrid. They're happy with it. It seems to be working. So in that sense, once people have tried working from home at scale, I get the sense that as a society, we realize, look, fully remote isn't great, but fully back in the office isn't what we need either. And most 
So I mean, just to explain it, most companies are doing this. They're saying, look, it's like take Apple. So Apple are fantastic at having simple, easy to understand products. So they're saying, look, we're going to come into the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Those three days can be super social, like all our meetings and events and presentations and trainings. Customer events are going to be in those three days. And then the other two days, we're going to have our quiet stuff at home. And it's a bit like, you know, the classic auto levy name task model of the labor market. So you think throughout the week, we have to do, you can break up everything you do into little tasks, you know, 12 minute tasks, 10 minute, two minute tasks, all the tasks that require larger groups or, you know, face-to-face contact. We're just going to reshuffle in the week into the three days from the office and all the tasks that are individual or maybe only with one other person that can be done over Zoom are going to be reshuffled to the Wednesday, Friday. And it's just, you know, it's not like we're doing different activities. We're just slightly rejigging what we're going to do throughout the week. So as a faculty member, you could think like all the seminars and all the teaching is going to be on these three days and all the research meetings and, you know, student advising, which is maybe best done face-to-face. And the other two days we do preparing presentations, data work, et cetera. Therefore, save ourselves two days of commute. I think it's very good that you mentioned uh, this example of Apple about the uh, Monday to Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. I think that coordination is a big issue, but and I want to go back to this. But before that, you mentioned the economics 101 of directed technical change. I want to mention to you a different type of economics 101, which is very prevalent in the literature of urban economics. So this uh, literature has been arguing for decades that there are economic forces that make individuals more productive when they live and work alongside other individuals with the same skills or high skills. You know, These forces, I don't know, agglomeration economies, spillovers, externalities, they all come down uh, to the same idea. Essentially, what they are saying is that there is something in the air, it's not COVID, but something else that transmits between workers and makes them more productive, more creative, more innovative. Now, I don't know if you disagree. My reading of the literature is that prior to um, the pandemic, these forces were not getting weaker, even as communication technologies had been steadily improving over the 20th and 21st centuries. So my question then is, do you disagree with this literature and believe that these forces are weaker than it is argued? Or do you think that the new technologies that have been invented since COVID make these agglomeration economies less important? Or was there some type of market failure by which maybe workers were not receiving the full benefit or their increased productivity and their agglomeration economies? And now maybe they have stronger power, as you were saying, because in some sense, either we believe that, you know, it is possible to work 40% of days for, you know, high skilled workers without a decrease, in fact, an increase in productivity, or in some sense, the previous literature was kind of wrong, or at least partly wrong. Uh, do you disagree with me on this, or am I not looking at this issue correctly? No, it's a, I, I don't think agglomeration economies have radically changed. I still think they're ever-present. So again, I'm going to go with what I see firms are doing to support. I think we still have agglomeration economies. So you know, just in the data, what we see is across large U.S. cities. So uh, for example, I'm looking at the change of address data from the U.S. Postal Service with Arjun Romani. And you can look at it zip code by zip code. It, this, people have done similar stuff across Europe. You see the centers of large US cities have lost about 15% of employees, residents, sorry, and they've moved out to the suburbs. So if you and me are going to be working from home hybrid, we're only commuting two, three days a week. Therefore, we probably don't need to live in the middle of what we do on a home office. Now, it seems that firms are still keeping their HQs in the center. And the reason is on those two, three days a week, They want their employees to come in and spend time with each other. So in terms of large cities, the residents have moved a bit further out, but they, in the US at least, we don't see massive flight. 
So in fact, the suburbs in New York, the suburbs of San Francisco have some of the hottest property markets because there's massive demand. It's just the city centers that have gone a bit quiet for residential. So they've lost, what, 15%. So the future model is still very consistent with conglomeration economies. The future, you know, typical US firm is saying, look, employees are going to come in two, three days a week. Those two, three days a week are going to be very social. You're going to spend all day working with each other. And that, in you know, kind of indicates that it's helpful being around other people. Now, you're right that you're going to have two, three days a week at home. And imagine, Jordi, you and I are working together. You know, I have an agglomeration economy because we're both, say, at the LSE. I, you know, have lunch with you, have a cool idea, we write it up. The next day, I go and spend the morning working on data work at home. I'd still say I'm spilling over from you the day before. So I think the fact that most firms I talk to are saying that most of their employees that are currently working from home are going to need to come back to two, three days a week indicates that there is a big benefit of being there in person. I mean, to give you a slightly more disaggregated sense, the numbers I see roughly are about 50% of people are going to be fully on-prem. So they just physically, I mean, this relates to the Dingle and Neiman work. They physically can't do their job at distance. Imagine you're working in, you know, McDonald's. You just can't serve hamburgers. That's half of Americans. Of the other half, probably 40% are like to go to hybrid. Let's say 3-2. There's a final 10% who can probably be fully remote, for which agglomeration probably matters less. But they're more specialist skills like payroll, some finance, IT support. And they're much more the types of jobs that might be contracted, contractors outsourced. They're more standalone. They're not managing people. They're often not being directly managed. They're providing a kind of technical service. But for the 40% that are more managers, professionals, creatives, I still see the power of agglomeration economy. So yes, people are moving out a bit. But if you look in the data, they're primarily in the US moving out to the suburbs of big cities. We're not seeing massive flight to the countryside, some, but not enormous numbers. I think it's very good that you uh, introduce this this distinction between types of jobs, because obviously... If, if we generalize, then whatever we say is not going to apply to every job, you know, so you can always find a, a counter example. So b- before talking to you, I was thinking about some categorization that was similar to the one that you um, that, that you are proposing now. I was thinking between three types, as you just said, waiters, administrative assistants, and inventors, where waiters includes also maybe manufacturing workers or bus drivers, you know, obviously you cannot work from home on those. Then you have inventors, which will be like the archetypical profession that benefits from agglomeration economies, you know, like creativity and, and the information flow. But then the 10% that you just uh, referred to at the end, I was putting them in the category of administrative assistant. These are like white collar, therefore they use a computer and therefore they can work from home, but not particularly high added value type of jobs or jobs that can be more easy, like monitored or deconstructed, maybe data entry, that would be obviously an example. So there, I think that I, I I think that maybe the distinction is not so much between working from home or working in the office, but instead between working in the office or having your job be shipped to India. No, no, I totally agree. So there's a really interesting globalization thing going on. So the media is full of the fact that manufacturing has seen deglobalization. So you know, two things: one, political Brexit, Trump. Uh, I mean, I know Trump is you know out of power right now, but you know they're kind of uh, uh, the shadow of, you know, anti-foreigner sentiment lives on. So it's it's harder to, you know, that's made it harder to globalize and all the tariff wars, but also obviously COVID. So manufacturing, when you talk to a lot of firms, they're nervous about long supply lines. You know, now we have supply shortages. So there's much more onshoring and deglobalization of manufacturing. As you say, the reverse seems to be happening in services. So when I talk to companies, a lot of them are saying, you know what, this team did really great over the pandemic and they've been fully remote for the last 18 months. So I've been thinking... <laughs> 
Why does this team need to be in the office? In fact, why do they need to be in the US? And why do they even need to be part of our company? So there's a lot of discussion about offshoring and outsourcing, which are related, but you know different concepts. And I'm pretty certain that the pandemic is going to, and probably already has, to a huge surge in service sector globalization. So it's kind of twisting around trade. So in many ways, a lot of people are nervous about the deglobalization of manufacturing for productivity. But given the US, Europe are about 70% services, 30% manufacturing of anything, the ability to offshore services actually may be more consequential. So uh, when you were talking about uh, hybrid and then coming to the office for three intense days to benefit from these spillovers, if our secretary is not going to benefit from these spillovers because his job just is not of this type, uh, then the question is, why does he have to come to the office? Why do we have to have him living, as you say, close to London? Because... Uh, obviously, commuting occasionally to the to the office will require that that he lives uh, in the suburbs or or not far from London. Why wouldn't it be cheaper to just have him somewhere else and conduct all the business remotely? No, that will be that will be the type of reaction, or if you want, like secondary reaction that the pandemic is having on the offshoring margin. Yeah. So I think it depends on the role. So if, for example, it's IT support, some of this stuff can be done remotely. I don't. You know, we've all had this experience of our laptop doesn't work, and you know, someone in a help center just takes control and fixes it. So that kind of person may, and in fact, increasingly, or payroll is another thing for a secretary. If I think. Think of, you know, my experience, think of in the economics department, they do a bunch of stuff that I think also needs to be there in person. You know, we have seminars and lunches and dealing with students and, you know, taking calls and discussing expenses and handing over. You know, I could I could easily see that they come in, which I think is what Stanford's doing, for example, two, three days a week and at home two, three days a week. And some of their tasks can be done remote and they'll be done on the remote days and others maybe need to be in person. So, you know, all our seminars and teaching is on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Maybe the assistants and secretaries come in on those days and Wednesday, Friday there at home. That makes total sense. There's, an, there's another angle to this that's kind of interesting from an org econ perspective, which is, um, I'll tell, tell you, it relates to a story. So there's someone called Marissa Mayer. I don't know how many people remember. She was the CEO of Yahoo. 2012 to 2017, she's now very successfully running her own startup. I actually interviewed her about a year ago during the pandemic to ask her about her Yahoo experience because I was working and working from home around then and was, was kind of involved in the media scrum. So to tell you the story, so a memo leaked from Yahoo in 2013 saying Yahoo was going to ban working from home and a huge media storm erupted. And she said it was, you know, a nightmare. She was like for two, three weeks harassed over this. And when I spoke to her, her story is A, like 10 years ahead of the time and B, totally, you know, econ, org econ 101. So she said, look, when you have employees, you can either evaluate them using outputs or inputs. So in terms of output valuation, it's what they do, what they produce. And if you have good HR systems, you can. 360 reviews and lots of metrics, you can say, you know, uh, you're the, you know, you're working for me, let's say I'm working for you. We can look at your achievables, your performance reviews, et cetera. And, and you know, that works well. He said the problem is when she took over in Yahoo, that wasn't in good shape. They didn't really have good performance metrics. So they were relying much more heavily on input measurement. As in, you know, Yordi, if you're managing me, do you see me at my desk physically there most of the time typing away, appearing to work hard? Or am I always, you know, wandering off or chatting with people in the corridor? He said, look, if people are in the office, 
you can monitor them based on inputs a lot easier than if they're remote. If they're remote, you can't see what the heck they're doing. And he said, look, therefore, when I took over from Yahoo, we had no good output measurement. Therefore, we couldn't really have remote work. And she said she actually pulled the login details for a whole bunch of remote, fully remote employees. And some of them had not turned on their computers for over a week. This is not like low work. This is literally no work. So they put in good performance management monitoring systems. And then once that was up and running, they then relaxed it and said, look, you can work from home a couple of days a week. So this points very much to something I've seen a lot in the pandemic, which is, you know, classic org e-com, which is firms that have good performance evaluation systems have handled working from home much better because they can monitor people and their employees have performed better as well. And they're happier. And, you know, the obvious reason is if I'm working for you and I'm working from home on Wednesday, Friday, one of the benefits of that is if I go to the dentist or pick my kid up, I can do it. What's really horrible is if I think you're clock watching me. And so I can't use that flexibility. Say, you know, I want to go to the dentist on Wednesday. I may decide, look, I'm just going to do an extra hour on Tuesday and take an hour off on Wednesday. And it makes total sense for me. And if I'm performance evaluated, that's fine. If you're clock watching me, I can't do it. So it turns out for both employers and employees, it's much better to have performance evaluation with working from home. I, I think everybody will agree that measuring output is better than measuring inputs. I mean, of course, the question is why were they not measuring outputs in Yahoo? One possibility is that it was a terrible company at the time. Another possibility is that the nature of the job makes it also very hard, um, especially if you work in uh, teamwork or if the success of your projects uh, is only revealed over the long term. You know, there are just jobs for which just with the best possible ingenuity and will, it's just not going to happen. I, I see it as a complementarity story. So, you know, in econ term, you know, the marginal productivity impact of measuring output for working from home is significantly higher it is than it is for in presence in the office. And if there's some cost for putting in place performance monitoring systems, whether it's a real cost or frankly like laziness on the behalf or intransigence of management. Before pre-pandemic, a lot of firms did not overcome that cost. Post-pandemic, the you know the marginal benefit's gone up a lot. The cost has presumably not changed. So I imagine there'd be a big increase in adoption. You're also right that for some jobs it's really hard. But again, you know my own personal anecdote. I used to be at McKinsey, and you do all really varied jobs. I mean, you'd work for clients in completely different sectors on different jobs, different timing, etc. It took a lot of time, but they had rigorous 360 reviews. It was. I mean, the downside is time intensive. So partners would say typically one out of five days a week they'd spend on performance reviews of employees. So that was a huge amount of time cost. On the other hand, I thought it was fair and effective in it. So, you know, it was stressful. You know, I left McKinsey, but it certainly kept me incentivized. And I did think that they've, you know, pretty rigorously and fairly assessed performance, you know, given how heterogeneous it is. So my take is, on average, firms are going to beef up expenditure and time into this because the marginal return to it has gone up. So I want to go back to the issue of coordination, um, which uh, you were giving an example in terms of Apple. So if going to the office has as a main benefit, being able to meet your colleagues, then uh, obviously going to the office is going to be useless if you are the only one to show up. So if you, uh, if as you predict like 40% of this are done from home and we have a team that includes three people and we come to the office randomly, then it's going to be quite unlikely that the three of us show up uh, at one point in time, uh, unless there is some type of, uh, you know, coordination. The question is how, will this coordina- how should this coordination be achieved? 
And I think that here the decentralized approach is really not going to work because I may prefer to go to the office on Friday rather than Wednesday because on Wednesday, my children finish school earlier and have no class. Whereas for you, you don't have children and prefer to go on Friday because the tube is less crowded, you know? And there, yeah. we, we are not going to internalize the benefits uh, to the firm in a way that is strong enough to compensate for being able to be in charge of our schedules. So in some sense, one could say that this type of coordination has already taken place in societies in that before the pandemic, we were working for five days of the week and resting too. But these two happened to be Saturday and Sunday for almost everybody. That is, there was some type of legislation or, or social norm that made it such that you couldn't really decide to work on Saturday rather than Wednesday. Or typically that wouldn't be the case. So then I think that something that is going to be kind of important is what is the new coordination device? You mentioned for Apple, the coordination device is going to be the firm, which is going to say Monday to Wednesday and then working from home Thursday and Friday. But what happens if another company also in Silicon Valley or whatever Apple is that employs the spouses of the Apple employees decides to have, you know, Wednesday to Friday, right? Like yeah. it will seem that a social norm is better than a company norm in that sense. Hey, it's an interesting question. So I just give you some kind of data points on that, which is one is in our survey of firms. If you look at large organizations, so those with 250 plus employees, which account for most employment, I think less than 5% are going for full decentralized. So I've talked to a lot of companies and they say, look, as you say, if you let people choose their days, it just really doesn't work. So people come into the office, they have meetings, so they discover that one or two people in their meetings is always at home if it's a meeting of five, six people. So then have to put out their laptop. And there's this door for you like in the office all day on a screen, shutting into the laptop. It's very noisy. Like They're like, why on earth would I do this? Why not? So you're exactly right. You need coordination now. If you look at companies around, half of them are coordinating at the team level or group or division level, which is maybe groups of 20, 30 people, and the other half are doing it at the overall company level all the way at the top. So again, to give you an example, J-PAL has said Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, everyone comes into J-PAL. This is post-pandemic. We're all going to work together. Thursday, Friday, everyone gets to work from home. And the upside of that is A, uh, obviously coordinated. B, they're like in the trust system, whereby they're saying, look, we well motivate and monitor our employees. We trust them. And as a result, you know, if you want to take a long weekend, that's fine. As long as you get your work done, it's up to you. So that seems a pretty progressive and like well thought through policy. In fact, Lazards, who are also run by Peter Orzag, another PhD economist, have an almost identical setup, whereby they're saying, what do employees most want? We know from survey data, employees most want to work from home on Mondays and Fridays. Let's give it to them and trust they get their job done because we have good performance management systems. So uh, yes, you're right. It raises questions about organization across firms. It's less obvious here because the intersection of public transport. So one of the issues is people don't want to get in a jammed tube train or have real congestion on you know, the freeway. And so I don't know, in the survey data, everyone wants to work from home Monday, Friday. If we let everyone do that, we're going to have real congestion Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on transport, but more coordination. If instead each firm chooses, some may choose to come in Monday, Friday and say, look, it's easy to drive in and get in on those days. Let's actually work from home Wednesday, Thursday. So I have a great sense. You're right. You know, there's trade-offs. I guess the free market will sort this out. So one of the nice things is that right now, labor markets are so hot, it's very easy to move jobs. And I'm talking to a lot of firms that are saying, we're going to set a hybrid plan. And we have some employees that want to come in five days a week, others that want to work from home five days a week. And often their view is, you know, these people may be just best leaving our firm. Now is a good time to change job because a lot of job out there. You know, it is what it is. Apple, I don't know if you noticed in the press has had thousands of people complaining that they're only getting to work from home 
home two days a week. If you look in the survey evidence, 30% of people want to work from home five days a week, but 20% want none. So, you know, whatever you do, you can't keep everyone happy. Uh, so I think there's going to be a mixed equilibrium where some firms, big companies like Apple, Amazon go in the middle. Others are going to allow all their employees to work permanently from home. Others are going to have them all come in all the time. And partly some smaller firms are going to go for these niches. So like I talked to a company this week, the CEO, who's called Matt Mullenweg, who's the CEO of Automatic. He founded it and it runs WordPress and a lot of web, so web software. And he said they've been fully remote for years. Interestingly enough, despite being fully remote, they still about once a quarter meet up for a week in person. So it seems like coming back to your example earlier, it's very hard for people in creative managerial roles to do it permanently fully remote. Much like faculty go to conferences to kind of meet up with each other. Even in firms that are fully remote, they still need that face-to-face contact, you know, every so often. A few thoughts from what you said. The first one is, of course, a synonym of congestion is agglomeration. Yes. These two things mean the same. It's just that one has a positive slant to it and the other one a negative slant. Yes. The, the, the second is that it seems interesting uh, of the question of why is it that uh, firms are deciding to attract or uh, recruit um, workers in the margin of allowing them to work from home rather than in the margin of paying them a higher salary, right? Like if if uh, firms are being forced to, if you want, to add working from home as a bundle to attract uh, prospective employees in a hot labor market, you could think that if it was uh, productive for them to not do that, then they should offer a superior bundle that has working from the office and then a higher salary. So it's a great point. There, there are two reasons why firms are offering working from home in terms of the labor market side of it. So one, as you say, is it's appealing. So just to put numbers on it, Mass and Play did an RCT that was published in the AR in 2017, where they randomized wages and work from home. And they discovered that people on average valued work from home at about 7 to 8% pay increase. We actually get literally the identity number standingly from surveys. So one is it's a perk. Now you're right. You could say, well, look, why don't we just give people a pay increase of 7%? If providing that perk is free or actually even improves productivity, you know, our numbers suggest it probably improves productivity by three to 4%. So you're like improving firm productivity plus giving employees something they value. That seems, you know, an easy win. And so that's why most firms are going it, going for it. The second issue, which is why a couple of firms that have tried to go for a full office return, so Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, have become unstuck, relates to the issue around diversity. So if you look in our survey data, who wants to work from home is not random. So for example, disabled people have a significantly higher preference to work from home in the survey than and non-disabled. If you look by race, the reported number of days that Black and Asian uh, survey participants say they want to work from home is higher than for white. It's true if you look at college graduates with children under the age of 12, that group as a whole already wants to work from home more days. Within that group, women report a significantly higher share than men. Interesting enough, we've done one thing where we ask people whether they what uh, what share of their co-workers are in their age bucket, their gender, their race, their political views, and their religion? What you see, and when we ask them how comfortable do they feel being in the office, you find that people that are in a minority amongst any of those five dimensions, which means less than 10% of your co-workers are in your say, same religion bucket, they report a lower comfort level coming in. And you know, you can think of stories about people don't like being outliers or microaggressions. There's a lot of you know discussion around this, but the, sh- the summary from this is if you look at who wants to work from home, it tends to be more 
more amongst diverse employees. And so if you force everyone to come in five days a week, you also have an additional cost for diversity. And for certain industries in particular, like finance, tech, that is a, a serious issue. And so that, as much as the pay level, is what killed the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. I mean, you can imagine they have employees that really want to keep certain minorities or diverse segments by various dimensions that say, look, if you make me come back to the office five days a week, I'm quitting. And they are like so keen to keep these employees that they would say, okay, fine. I mean, I actually know someone in this exactly this group. They were cut a deal to come in and work from home for three days a week. And then that kind of crumbles it. So it was never a good idea in the first place because, you know, increases efficiency to have people hybrid. It makes employees happy. When you discover there's a second, you know, issue around diversity, it, it's just dead. I mean, I just, I, you know, as a, as a part, I do, I'm not aware of any large firms that are trying to get people that can work from home back into the office five days a week because I think it's so problematic. They're based, as far as I'm aware, I've just given up. The only two in the news were Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, and they are privately backpedaling. So one thing that I want to talk about now is uh, social capital. So one finding that, that you have is that, you know, employees, workers are finding the working from home is better than expected or not bad at all. They really enjoy it, etc. But I wonder the extent to which they are incorporating in these views, the depreciation of their social capital that has taken place during the pandemic. That is, as academics, if you are like 20 years in the profession and have seven papers that are half finished and an established set of co-authors, then you can stay at home for three years in a row and not feel any decrease in productivity. But the moment that you have to start new projects, maybe new questions with potentially new co-authors, then obviously not having established these connections during the time that you spend at home is going to really damage you. And I, I say this because in some sense, the, the benefits and the cost of working from home are going to be asymmetric. That is the higher experience, higher track record, and therefore higher social capital employees, they can rest on their laurels at least for a while. Whereas workers at the beginning of their career who don't have these established connections, the ability to learn from others, to collaborate with, uh, with others, are going to suffer from the fact that the you know their more senior colleagues from which they will be uh, learning are not in the office. And I think that this, in some sense, links back to the issue of diversity. Because if we are worried that you know certain workers from uh, minority backgrounds find it harder to progress through the uh, organizational hierarchy and, and all this, then working from home whilst everybody else is coming to the office or coming to the office for longer, if you want, is not going to be great for their you know, accumulation of social capital. It's going to generate a vicious circle uh, in some sense because their, you know, their initial, uh, you know, lagging behind in that social capital is going to ac- accumulate over time. Yeah. So on both points, in uh, just going in reverse order, I, on the second part, I think that's a really important issue. And in fact, when I've been talking to firms, the management advice I've given them is one, and take the three-two plan. So they should focus on both numbers. So just to be clear, a lot of firms are very focused on making sure employees are in the office three days a week, but are not paying much attention to making sure they're at home two days a week. Now, if you don't focus on the second number, the risk is certain demographics that typically are are not those in these diverse cells are more likely to come in on those two days. We see it in the survey data in terms of preferences to come into the office. We also know from research that, as you say, there's this issue of presenteeism bias. So if you come in and other employees that you're effectively competing for a promotion with don't, the second groups like to get left behind. So just to give you a number, in the randomized control trial we ran in C-Trip in China in 2010, we randomized people, volunteers, into working from home 
home four days a week or coming in full time. And those that work from home four days a week after 21 months had a 50% lower promotion rate, which is a massive gap. So actually, I think it's extremely important for DI policy to try and, for exactly the reason you said, to make sure that people do work from home over their two days. Because if they don't, effectively what happens is you put pressure on everyone to come in because you either have to come in or you get left behind. And if, say, you have some you know commitment at home, that means it's not as easy to come in where you have a lower preference to come in, you're less likely to and you're more likely to get left behind. So I think it's an important issue and it's come up a lot talking to firms about focusing on the two days as well as the three days. On the first point, yes, that's also true. And again, another piece of management advice is for the employees in their first year, they should come in an extra day a week. So, you know, for example, for the first year, those employees come in, they bond at least as a cohort with each other, different managers rotate in and spend the day with them. I mean, in academia, I'm completely on board with, you know, stretching the tenure clock out free, which has happened, I think, in most institutions for an extra year, because assistant professors have been hit clearly worse than seniors. And I think grad students worse of all. So yes, I mean, I, I think, and that's another reason to and, you know, go back at least to hybrid sooner rather than later, because it's very costly, particularly for junior people, because they don't have this big stock of social capital to live off. Wonderful. Thank you, Nick, for coming to the podcast. Thanks for, very much for having me. It's a great discussion. Very, uh, very. Thank you. Uh, my guest today has been Nick Bloom. My name is Jordi Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discuss. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesquiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. Thank you.